Well, good morning, Covenant. And good morning to those of you watching us from home. My name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors, and I want to invite you to go right to the middle of your Bible, if you have it with you, to the 23rd Psalm. Uh, if you have a phone or a, a device and you'd like to share this message, I have a feeling there's someone out there, a friend of yours that maybe we couldn't otherwise make touch with that needs some hope today, and I hope to share some great hope. We're in the middle of a series called At Peace. How do you live at peace? How do you live with a tranquil heart in the middle of a world that's coming apart? And one of the things we're learning from King David and by his own experience that really kind of oozes out through these words is, is really that that's possible without anything changing on the outside. None of the circumstances that you think maybe are the fault of someone else or maybe are the, the reason why you can't get it all together or whatever it might be, none of that needs to prevent you from living at peace. And we have seen so far a king who is satisfied, completely content. We've seen a king who's refreshed in the middle of whatever kind of stressors are on his life. He's able to find refreshment. We've seen a king who's focused. A man who has understood that I don't need to be diverted. My attention doesn't need to be everywhere. I can keep my eye on the ball and do what I believe God has created me to do. All of that thus far has been contained within this poem, perhaps the most famous poem in all the world, certainly the most famous one in Scripture. Today, we're going to ask a really simple question dealing with the, the subject of prepared peace. And that question is, are you ready? Are you ready for a moment specifically that David describes here. You can learn a lot from grave markers. Did you know that? Anybody else weird like my wife and I, and you just sort of walk through graveyards every once in a while, and you look at the markers of people you know? So my wife and I were the only weird people in the building. That's fine. Yeah, we, we walked through on occasion. And a few months back, we were at a, on our anniversary celebration, and we said, let's walk through a graveyard, because that's romantic, you know? And, and so, but we were in Gettysburg, and so we walked through the Veterans Cemetery. Uh, there at Gettysburg, and, and we saw all kinds of things. And one of the things that we noticed that we kept bringing up to each other is how much you can tell simply by taking the information off that grave marker, correlating the age of the deceased with their date of death and the part of American history in which they lived. And so uh, if you're walking by and you see a grave, and it signifies that this individual was in the army and that he died in his 20s relative to the date of his birth. And then you look at the date of his death and you see that date as December the 6th, 1944. You can reasonably conclude that he was likely killed in action, probably on a French beach somewhere. If you go somewhere else in, in, in that graveyard and you find that someone died not in the 40s, but in his 20s or maybe even in his early late teens on active duty in 1971, there's a reasonable conclusion that he probably spent some time in South Vietnam or the highlands of, of central Vietnam and likely died there. And then there are those markers that don't require any correlation. They just tell you everything. The most colorful one of those I've ever personally visited is the infamous Boot Hill Cemetery in Tombstone, Arizona. Has anybody ever been there? You, you are so culturally deprived, people, I'm telling you. I loved visiting Tombstone. The, the, the things on those tombstones are, well, they sound kind of like this. Three-finger Dunlap shot by Jeff Milton. So we know everything we need to know. All right? Marshal Fred White shot by Curly Bill. We know what that means. And then, of course, is the Here Lies Lester Moore. Four shots from a 44, no less, no more. So, so when you walk through a graveyard and you pay attention, you hear a lot of different stories. 
And, and you can even glean, like I said, from those, those correlations, what happened in someone's life. And some of it may require even a little bit of conjecture, but at the end of the day, uh, you get some sense of who they were. And, and as you walk through a graveyard, the people who are buried, whose remains are buried underneath there, their lives are just as diverse as the people in my, in my view right now and the folks that are watching from home. They come from all different backgrounds. They died at different ages. But there was one thing that every single one of them had in common. They all died. Yeah. All of them had a life that come, came to an end. I think it was George Bernard Shaw that once said that the, the statistics about death are overwhelming. One out of every one person will die. And so when you walk through that, you see that. In Indiana, there's a grave marker that carries the following message. And on the surface, it seems kind of deep. It says, pause, stranger, when you pass me by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Sounds pretty deep, but not quite deep enough for one passerby who left a note at the foot of that grave that simply said this, to follow you, I am not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> There's a consensus around what we believe about death. That believe it or not, with all of the diversity of belief and religion and philosophy and ideology that, that continues to rise in this nation, there's still a pretty sharp consensus around what we believe about death. Born of Research just a few years back said that 79% of Americans agreed with the statement, every person has a soul and they're going to live forever, either in God's presence or outside of God's presence. But here, here's the thing, out of those 79% that said that, 24% of those respondents said, I have no idea idea what's going to happen when I die. So think about how unsettling that is for a minute. I don't know. I believe I'm going to die. I believe after death, there's some other existence. I, I tend to agree with the sort of uh, monotheistic understanding that there's really only two destinations that I could go to, but I'm unsettled. And, and when you think about that, you really can't blame them, especially if they don't know, because there's a lot about this we don't control. You don't control when you die. You don't control how you die. You have no control over any of the circumstances that will surround your death. The only thing, in fact, that you can be absolutely certain about is that that day is coming for you. And it's coming for me. And it's coming for everybody who has ever lived. We know that it's coming. And David recognizes that as well. As we look at verse 4 this morning, we're looking at both the, the structural center of a poem and we're also looking at the theological center of his message. It's around death. And David deals with this honestly. And here's what we discover. There's a lot of hope here. God <clears throat> has not left us to ourselves to figure all this out in the dark. If you have no idea what's going to happen to you when you die, you don't have to stay that way. God has revealed some knowledge to you. And the same God that can give us satisfaction in the midst of a world that's filled with greed and incontent people and entitled people, same God that can give us relief from stress in the middle of an entire nation full of workaholics, the same God that can give us focus in this life, he'll also transition us to the next one if we follow him. And around this subject of death, I want you to see three words of assurance. The first one is this, David assures us we do not have to be afraid of death's power. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
Now, I don't know how many of you know this, but there really is a valley in Palestine called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. It's on the old Jericho Road from Bethlehem. It's very deep and dangerous. So much so, and some of you who are from downstate West Virginia have probably lived in places like this where the, the holler is so deep between the mountains that sun only penetrates it for a few hours a day. This is one of those places, except it's in Palestine. And they call it the Valley of the Shadow of Death because for all but about two to three hours of the day, it's under a shadow, even in the daylight. And it's dangerous. It's deep. And, and so David invokes this language because he knows from experience what this feels like. Any other shepherd, for that matter, would have known what this felt like to, to lead your sheep along that road up to the top of the mountain. Now, if you're like me and you have virtually no experience raising livestock, you may think about that for a minute and go, what shepherd in his right mind would put sheep on such a dangerous road? Well, the answer is that this road was the only path that would bring the flocks to their best seasonal locations. Because in the fall, the snow would start to fall up at the top of the mountain, and it would begin to block some of the pathways. And so if you find yourself up there after a really big snowfall, anybody ever been snowed in somewhere and you couldn't get out? Okay, imagine being at the top of a mountain and all of your livestock are vulnerable and the temperature just keeps dropping. And that, that's not a tenable situation for your flock or for you for that matter. And so in the fall, you've got to carry them down that road to warmer places so they won't freeze to death. But then spring comes. And when spring comes, that same snow that piled up starts to melt. And by that point, the food supply, the water supply, it, it's getting kind of low where they are. But up top, you've got this fresh, lush green grass. You've got this enormous water supply from all that melting snow. And so while in the fall, you would bring them down for their safety in the spring, you'd carry them back up. And that road, under what was then called the valley of the shadow of death, that was the only way to get back and forth between those two locations. So if you're wondering, why would a shepherd do something like that? Why would they take the sheep on such a dangerous road? Because it was the only path to what the sheep needed. And that was it in both directions. And the location is a reflection of a couple of things that David points to here. And the first is the certainty of death. He says, when I walk... Every single one of us not only will face this moment and walk this road, but I don't know if you realize this or not, we're walking this road right now. You're walking it, and I'm walking it. Each one of us at this moment, it doesn't matter how healthy you are, it doesn't matter how much longer you think you've got, it doesn't matter what decade of life you may find yourself in, everybody in this room has one thing in common, you are one heartbeat away. You are one short breath away right now walking in the valley of the shadow of death. You know, a little over a month ago, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You are probably like me. If you were around that time and were an adult, you probably remember where you were. You remember what you were feeling. You, you remember all of the reaction to that. And 20 years later, we're all still experiencing sort of the after effects of it. Right? I mean, it, even, even something simple as, as getting on an airplane is never going to be the same again. And you got to think about that, right? Prior to 9-11, I never had to worry whether or not I had holes in my socks. Now I got to worry about that. That day, the whole nation woke up to the threat of terrorism on our own soil. Life changed in profound ways. But here's what we, what we so often forget to think about. 
the threat was just as real on September the 10th. We just weren't aware of it. That threat still exists, by the way. We're getting close to the two-year mark since COVID-19 changed our lives in profound ways. And I don't want this message to come across like you shouldn't take precautions when such things are revealed to us in the natural order. We did our best to do that here. But, but here's the truth. You can also live in such fear when something like that comes on you that you start living, even without thinking about it, as though the mere purpose of your life is to stay alive. What a sad existence that is. What, what's the reason that God put you on this planet? To stay alive as long as possible. That, that's imprisoning, right? So you can also live in fear. And then you forget about this. You can survive COVID and have a heart attack. You can be taken at any moment. I'm not telling you not to take precautions. You all know some of y'all got mad about with me about the precautions we took around here. Of course you should be wise. Of course you should not tempt the Lord your God. But when you are so afraid of death that you forget, hey, you know what? Even before this virus became real, I was one heartbeat away. You're sort of like where America was on September the 10th, 2001. You may not be as aware of it as you should be, but the threat is just as real. And if, and if that's all true, then whatever the answer is to our anxiety, to our fears when it comes to this issue of sickness and suffering and death, it's not the removal of the threat that's going to solve the problem, is it? Because the threat's always going to be there. We live with that threat every single day. And this is where David's next words can be of great help to us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, look at these four words, I will not fear. How could somebody be so acutely aware of how close they and their loved ones always are to death and say, I'm not afraid? How's that possible? The answer is apparently not in the removal of death, but it is in the removal of fear. He's keeping you in the valley of the shadow of death, but taking away the fear. I don't have to be afraid. And when your circumstances define your disposition, it's going to be hard to be faithful when things are not going in your favor. But we all know, do we not? Brothers and sisters who have suffered greatly, who have suffered chronic health issues, who still suffer, who have stared death in the face. Bless her heart, I hope I'm not putting her on the spot this morning, but we had a dear sister leading us in worship this morning who has been there and who never ceased to praise Jesus. That's where his glory comes from. It's in moments like that when we are made to suffer and we still say the Lord is good. And we still follow him, even if there's depression, if there's anxiety, if there's fear. And we say, I'm not afraid. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you can live like that. That life is instantly available to you. And you can walk out today living a life like that. But it starts with, with refusing to be afraid of the power of death. And the way you get there is, again, it's not by thinking you're invincible. When I was in my 20s, I thought I was invincible. I did all kinds of stuff. I was out with my daughter yesterday. I took her to breakfast. She's 12 years old. And so she goes, I, I don't even remember how we got on the subject, but she's basically, my kids tell me sometimes, would you tell us a story when you were younger? And I got to be honest with you. I wonder if I'm being set up for blackmail at some point. 
I really do, because I know some of the stuff. I'm just thankful that God, YouTube wasn't around. Praise Jesus, right? And so I said, well, what did you used to do when you were, oh, I know what it was. She was going to a sleepover with a friend of hers. And she goes, did you ever do that? And I went, yeah, yeah, I, I hung out. I crashed at my buddy's house. I did this, did that. We went to the beach together. We did it. Well, what did you guys do? I'm not sure I should tell you that, baby. I'm not sure I should share that information. So I shared one story with her. And y'all are just going to have to use your imagination because I ain't sharing it with you today. Because you know what my 12-year-old said when I finished sharing that story? She went, wow, you really were an idiot. Because <laughs> when you're in your 20s, you're in your late teens, you're like, I'm going to survive anything. The older you get, the more you kind of become aware of your own mortality, don't you? So the issue is, no, number one, I don't have to be afraid of it, but not because I'm invincible, not because I'm in my 20s and there's some angel somewhere working overtime to make sure I don't bite it, you know, before I'm supposed to. You don't need to be afraid because you can be aware of God's presence. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear Look at these next five words. For you are with me. My disposition is not determined by the road I walk or whatever suffering I may have to endure while I'm there. It is determined by who walks with me. Okay? I, I sometimes think that we, we too often describe God moments in such mountaintop ways that we think those are the only atmospheres in which God can move. How often have we heard that, particularly in the Western church? God showed up and showed off. I've never heard that said in an atmosphere where someone was dying of cancer. Never once. Why not? Why not? It's because we think the mountaintop, right? And so when we, when this leads people that come to church and they leave and they're like, well, I don't feel it. But okay. Or they're, or they People in my line of work who say, well, I, I, I don't know, we got to charge it up. We got to prime the pump a little bit, which by the way is, if you look at the Old Testament, that's actually Baal worship. Prime the pump, all right? It was a little, it was, it's a little less violent today because it doesn't involve cutting yourself with rocks until you bleed profusely. Uh, it, it's more about fog machines and lasers and making sure, you know, who the gimmicky crap that happens in a lot of churches. And look, I'm, I'm fine with having fun and doing all that, but if we're depending on that to charge up the emotions behind that is an assumption that God can only work on the mountaintop. He can only work when my emotions are at a place where I can receive it. He couldn't possibly work in the middle of suffering from sickness, couldn't possibly work through a pink slip, couldn't possibly work through marital struggles. I got to get to some other place so that I can feel his presence. Meanwhile, look at what the author of Hebrews tells us. Keep your life free from the love of money. Well, what does that mean? Well, among other things, it probably means if I just had more, I'd be fine. And be content with what you have. In other words, 
Don't wait on your circumstances to change. Doesn't mean you shouldn't get a better paying job. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try to better yourself. What it means is your identity, your peace of mind cannot be tied to those things because just like your heart could stop beating any moment, those external things that are providing you income and comfort and all that, all that could be terminated at any moment by just about any means. Be content with what you have. Why? For he has said... I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Ask yourself an honest question this morning. If my circumstances could change and get better and make me feel better, but the cost of that was to be absent the presence of God, would I make that deal? Because I fear there's a lot of people that would make that deal. A lot of folks. I'm not afraid because we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I'll ask you the question that I asked at the outset of the series together. When will Jesus be enough for us? When will we be content with the very thing that we celebrated? When is it, when is it time to go back to the simple, just some bread and some juice to engage the senses and remind us of what was done for us that we did not deserve? When will we be reminded of that, and when will that be enough? Because the moment he is enough for you is the moment that you'll start living at peace. And this happens even as we face death. There's no more beautiful description of this than in the 116th Psalm. In verse 3, we read the following, and this again, the testimony of the psalmist. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And the answer does not come until 12 verses later. But look at what we read in verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious. So, so here's what you need to know. When all the bills are paid, and when there's more month than money at the end of the month, God is with you. When the doctor's report tells you that you have the health of someone 10 years younger than you, or when the doctor's report tells you you might not have another year to live, God is with you. And the difference is not the absence of trouble or the pain or the suffering. The difference is in the presence of God. Can I be satisfied with that? Is Jesus enough for me? One of the not-so-fun things about being a pastor is the, the role we play in times of grief. It's an honor to do that. I'm, I'm rarely honored more than when a family asks me to walk beside them in the processing of their grief and the laying of their loved one to rest. I don't understand pastors who don't do funerals. I don't. I, I don't get that at all. I mean, how much closer, how much greater an opportunity could there be to walk with your people through the most difficult time? I just, I'm not saying they're in sin. I'm just saying, I don't get that. That's a rather new thing about the last 10 or 15 years. And, and I don't get it. I don't get it. Because you get to walk through people. But, but I also get, it's never happy fun time, is it? And I have wept with quite a few families. And the most painful experiences come during those times when a loved one who's been left behind feels guilty because they weren't there. And that's an increasing issue in our day. Not, not due to sin or anybody's fault. We just live in a, a much more mobile day. Now, our kids grow up, they go to college, they get a job wherever they can find one, and sometimes they live five, six, seven, eight states away. 
And if, especially if the death is sudden, they, they, they can't get on a plane in time, they can't get back in time, but there's still that guilt in there. I should have been there, should have been there for my mama. I, I wasn't able to be there for my own mother's death just a little bit over a year ago. I, thank God, was able to get some time and I went down and, and I spent one last day with her. But I just, there wasn't any way. You, you can't, you don't know when it's coming. You know it's coming. You know it's close. But you, you have responsibilities and obligations. And by the way, your elders, our elders, gave me that freedom. So it wasn't, you guys are not to blame for that. The elders are not. But, but there's work to be done here, right? And I had to think about that for a minute. Should I take advantage of that and just stay down there for weeks on end? And then all of a sudden, the voice of my mama came into my head. If she had been in her right mind and capable of giving me counsel in that moment, she would have looked up from her deathbed and said, boy, ain't you got somewhere to be? Aren't there some people in West Virginia dependent on you? What are you doing down here? But sometimes there's guilt in there. I wish I was there. And now mama's gone, daddy's gone, brother, sister's gone, wife, husband's gone, and, and there's that unspoken feeling of obligation. Here, here's the hope I want to give you today. For those who know the Lord, and they have a relationship with him through Jesus, these four words should be encouraging to you if you've ever been in that situation emotionally. For you are with me. I'm going to tell you something. There has never been and there never will be a child of God who dies alone. And if you know Christ, that's never going to happen to you. You will never die alone. I don't know what you're going through right now, but I know there is a God who wants to be there with you. I know he feels that because he sent his own son. We just memorialized it in communion to pay the sin that separates you from him so that you would not have to be alone. In fact, when we read these words, and especially the words of a previous psalm, Psalm 22 comes right before this one, and you read it through the lens of Jesus, the things we know would happen some 1,000 years after these words from David were written, we see that sacrifice in great detail. See if these words sound familiar to you. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have we heard those words? Jesus would speak those words. He would quote them verbatim from the cross. Now, here's the difference between the psalmist and between David and between Jesus, okay? Now, mental health specialists will often employ something called cognitive behavioral therapy. It's, it's a means by which you seek to dislodge the patient from feelings that do not comport with reality, okay? So ideations, emotions, things that are driving them to depression, to anxiety, and what you're trying to do in the counselor's room, best I can understand it, is to pull them away from this sort of faulty basis that has them standing on something that is driving the anxiety, the depression, the grief, the fear, and to put them on something that's actually real. That's another way of saying, when you think God has forsaken me, you have feelings that do not comport with reality, and you might need some cognitive behavioral therapy. Because that never happens to you. But here's the big difference. It did happen to Jesus. So that it would not have to happen to you. When he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's feeling completely comports with reality. 
Jesus was separated from the Father for your sins and for my sins. And the reason he did it was so that he could promise you that you and I would never be forsaken. There's your peace in this life and in the other life. So when God says he's with you, you can believe it. Don't count on what you feel in the moment. When he says he's there, believe it. Don't be afraid of the power of death. Be aware of the presence of God and be assured that as he is with you, he is protecting you. Look at the last phrase of verse 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So we have a couple of tools here, that the meaning of which we need to unpack because very few of us actually grew up on a farm. The rod, especially not an ancient one, the rod was used by the shepherd as a weapon against predators, beat them off, but it was also used as a tool of discipline for the sheep, for their own good. Well, you don't have to be a shepherd in the ancient world to understand that. All you have to do is be a parent. All right, if you have a small, stubborn child, and they keep going for the knife drawer, or they keep going for the hot stove surface, this right here, it stings, but it's not abuse. It's love. Stay away from that. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to do it. If there's pain in your life, sometimes who knows what's going on, right? I'm not going to be presumptuous enough to lecture you about what your pain means, except to say that there are times because we read it in the scriptures and it's something you need to ask yourself. Is, there, is this a tool of discipline? Is God trying to teach me something? As C.S. Lewis famously quipped, he whispers in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. He's trying to say something to us. And maybe it's not a, a tool of correction, but maybe he's, maybe he's just trying to get our attention. There, there's another use of this word, by the way, when it's employed outside the context of a shepherd and his sheep. In Genesis 49 and Isaiah 14, we see this word translated scepter. So it's not just a tool for battling away predators or disciplining the sheep. It's a symbol of authority. We read in Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So where our God is concerned, reference to the rod means that he lovingly disciplines us while simultaneously protecting us from our enemy. And he does so Parents, you ever discipline your kid and realize either I went too far or I made a mistake or I was acting on bad information? Don't leave me alone out there. Tell the truth, right? Yeah, the number of, yeah, Mrs. Rainey on a few occasions, hey, you, you might not have meant to, but you, you just crushed your son and you need to go make that right, right? God will never do that. He will never cross that line. Why? Because everything he does, he does with perfect royal authority. And as the sovereign ruler of all heaven and earth, you and I, if we belong to Jesus, are protected by a sovereign God. There ain't nothing ever going to happen to you that he doesn't permit to happen. The rod is to protect. And then there's the staff. There's this, it's this really long, crook-shaped instrument that could fit around the neck of a sheep. So if you want to pull it back from a cliff... Or you want to reach down because it's walked right into a ditch? Because sheep are kind of dumb. We really shouldn't take it as a compliment when the Bible calls us sheep because they're pretty stupid. And they will. They'll walk right into a hole. 
you got to get down in that hole and get that hook up around their, their midsection and pull them up out of that hole. And so at the risk of oversimplification, we put it this way, with the rod, God protects his sheep, and with the staff, he directs the sheep. And that agricultural metaphor just simply tells us he's constantly with us and that we can count on his protection, his direction, and therefore we, we can count on a safe arrival at our destination. Through all of the ups and downs in our lives, we can count on him to the extent that when all of life rages around me, I can be at peace for one reason, one reason, something that came a thousand years after these words were written. When an angel came to Joseph, you want to talk about the world coming apart? Try being a carpenter in an honor-shame culture, and your teenage fiancé is pregnant, and everybody's looking at you to see whether you're going to own it or whether you're going to put her out as someone who's already been unfaithful and loose with her life. And in an honor-shame culture, there's no third option. That's all there is. Oh, and by the way, she's trying to convince you God did it. That's the world he lives in. So that, that kind of circumstance sort of requires an angel, doesn't it? Someone to come to you and make it obvious she's telling you the truth. Take her as your wife. The child she's conceived, yeah, she told you the truth. It's been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you will name him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And then we read this in Matthew 1, 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name. Emmanuel, which means God with us. What's Joseph hearing in the middle of that? I'm not changing your circumstances. I'm not taking you out of it. You're going to have to make some hard calls. You're going to have to deal with people who believe things about you that are not true. You're going to be a refugee for a couple of years down in Egypt. There's a lot of, I am with you. And so don't be afraid of the power of anything in your circumstances, let alone death. Be assured of my presence and be assured of my protection. Donald Gray Barnhouse, when he was alive, was pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and he lost his wife, what we would call prematurely. He still had little kids at home, including a young daughter, still a child, and he's trying to help this little girl especially, in addition to himself kind of process the grief of her loss. And he doesn't know quite how to do it. You've been there. You've done that. You know, there's Bible verses that you can go to and they provide you some level of comfort, but emotionally you're still kind of a wreck and there's things you've got to get through. And that's, that's just how it is. But, but something happened to them on a drive that gave him an idea. A large moving truck passed them on a highway. And when it did, the truck came between their car and the sun, and it cast a great big shadow over the car to the extent that it even changed the internal temperature of the car. And it gave him an idea. He looked in the back seat where his daughter was, and he said, sweetie, would you rather be run over by the truck or by its shadow? And the daughter replied, well, probably kind of like my daughter did the other day. Wow, you're an idiot. Like, what, what kind of question is that? Of course, I'd rather be run over by the shadow. Because a shadow can't hurt you. 
And so this is what Barnhouse said. He said, you're right. If the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you're fine. And I want to tell you, we're in a lot of pain right now. But what we're feeling is not at all in comportment with ultimate reality. Because your mother passed through the shadow of death. She's actually alive. In fact, she's more alive than we are right now sitting in this car. And the reason she's alive is because it was only the shadow that passed over her. And the reason only a shadow passed over her is because 2,000 years ago, the real truck hit Jesus. And the ultimate result of that collision was no more truck, just the shadow. And that's the assurance he gives you and that he gives me. It, it comes, death comes at us, for, it, it comes for different people in different ways and different times. Sometimes it's prolonged sickness and suffering that is awful to deal with, but at least you're preparing for it. Sometimes it comes suddenly. It's just, you're just taken or someone is taken from you when you least expect it. So yeah, take precautions. Don't do stupid things like the story that I told my daughter. Don't probably be better if you didn't do things like that. Be careful, but don't live in fear. Don't live in fear. For this could come at any moment. I'm not promised another Sunday in this pulpit. You are not promised another Sunday sitting in those seats hearing what I'm saying to you. One of us or more than one of us might be in heaven before this time next week we just do not know and jesus has to be enough he has to be enough for us in that moment because the one thing we know about death it always comes and the other thing we know about death is the reason it comes it comes because you and i live in a broken world in which every single one of us including myself and all of you have rebelled against god and the result of that sin curse comes and it includes physical death and i don't i don't want to i don't want to be pie in the sky this morning those waters are chilly they're chilly i'm not telling you death is not a serious thing as a friend of mine said years ago, it's fine to quote Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. You just better do it with a lump in your throat because death don't play and death is coming. But even in those moments, God gives us hope. Paul would put it this way. Let me read those verses for you. 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Are you ready for that day? If you're not, that first death is simply the beginning of a second death and an eternal separation from God. But if you are, if you are ready in those moments, God gives you hope, God gives us peace, and you put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and even in the face of death, you can say with David, I will not fear. I'm not afraid. Or as that bumper sticker used to say, I ain't scared. And I can live that way, but only if Jesus is enough for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for assurance, not only in this life, but in the next one. We don't talk as much as we used to, 
about the imminency of our own mortality, our death. Maybe it has something to do with these, this wonderful gift of common grace you've given us in advanced medicine, the extension of human life. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we no longer live in a day where people die before their 50th birthday and it's kind of seen as the norm. We thank you for a day where people live into their 80s, their 90s, even a century or more. Father, never let that take our gaze off of the spiritual reality behind the curtain. That death is real, that death is nothing to play with, and that if we're going to live in a way that we're not going to be afraid of it, we really have to believe that you are enough. And so I pray this morning for those who have yet to know you, that they would reach out, that they'd be willing to turn from their sins, that they would put their faith and their trust in you. Maybe there's somebody watching from home right now, and that's the call that you put on their life, and they can feel your Holy Spirit tugging at them. Lord, overwhelm them in that living room or in that bedroom or wherever they find themselves. Do the same for anybody sitting in a seat in this worship center right now. And bring them to the foot of the cross and give them the same kind of disposition that David had here. Father, we're, we're going to be talking in the coming months about where we are and where we're going as a body of Christ irrespective of what happens around us or what happens in the culture, that we have a, a mission. And Lord, we don't have to be highly educated to execute it, but we do have to be willing to die. So in this moment, Father, make us not afraid of death by believing that you are enough. And I make this prayer in the mighty name of the one who conquered death on our behalf. Amen.